Welcome to Canada's podcast. Hi, this is Celine Williams hosting from Ontario for Canada's podcast. My guest today is David Marcus, an industry expert when it comes to all things cannabis with over 25 years of experience. And he is the founder and president of two Canadian cannabis companies, Natural Emphasis and Abide. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks, Celine. Nice to be here. I am excited to talk to you about this. I think that, uh, as we all know, cannabis is a very fast-growing and fascinating industry in in Canada. So the fact that you have so much experience, I'm excited to get into your story. Um, That being said, I'm going to ask how you got to do what you're doing now, how you got into the industry, your entrepreneur journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I I guess the now of it is um, we're a licensed producer and cultivator of cannabis. Um, And, uh, but our first brand that we launched is called Whole Hemp and it's a CBD brand. So um, as far as I know, the, we're the only Canadian uh, cannabis company to focus solely on hemp-based CBD products. Uh, so that story of getting involved in, in hemp and the hemp business went back, goes back to 94, I guess. Uh, I was, well, I decided I wanted to be an architect, but I had been, um, accepted into uh, business school. And by the time I figured that out, it was going to be another year before I was going to go to architecture school. So I figured I'd do two years of business school and uh, and then do architecture. And in my first uh, year of the school, I was put in an entrepreneurial section and we had to do an, uh, a project, a group project on an entrepreneur of our choice. And um, so that was the early days of sort of the agitation, I guess, towards cannabis legalization. And so we actually chose a fellow, Chris Clay, who had uh, a store in in London, Ontario. I was at school in London. And and he was very interesting to us because he was, I would say, a true entrepreneur. He was trying to change the laws. But he was more of an entrepreneur as a social entrepreneur than, I would say, so interested in the financial side he really just wanted to you know to do a constitutional challenge and so you know he started selling seeds and they didn't bust them so he started selling clones and then they busted them and (laughs) and his whole point was basically to go to court so anyway we told the school our professors that this is the guy we wanted to do our project on and they Mm -hmm. said nah you can't do that and so to be honest i was in my early 20s and i was like give me a break. You know, this is a master's program. You're telling me I can't do this. I, I mean, I pretty much felt like just pulling the plug and saying, all right, I don't need to be here. But as it turned out that same summer in 94, um, Joe Strobel and Jeff Kine got the first of modern research license to grow hemp in Tilsonburg, which is just uh, east of, of um, London there. And uh, that was, that seemed to us a reasonable alternate. And uh, so we did our, our project on, on them. Uh, their company at the time was called Hempline. And, you know, it was an interesting time. There was, uh, we found out about a conference in uh, Germany, which was the first modern industrial hemp conference. And I convinced the school to send me there to, do research and I ended up writing a couple of case studies that were 
taught in the school with a couple of my colleagues at the school. And then that summer, um, my partner, now my wife and I started our first business and, uh, and we basically just started selling all the hemp products that we could find. Right. So we, we basically mm-hmm. would do festivals and we get hemp clothing and hemp paper products and hats and uh, maybe some hemp food. And, and we did festivals and just kind of got a sense of what people were interested in and, and you know, did all right. And um, I actually went to Holland for, on a, for a, uh, a semester on exchange in the second year. And so she ran the business while I was over there and um, I finished up school. And afterwards, you know, all my colleagues at school were, you know, being hired by investment banks and consulting firms and this kind of thing. And we kept our little hemp business going. And at the time it was actually called natural emphasis. And what we found out, I mean, really, I guess the entrepreneurial journey is what that was basic market research was what it was. And the one thing that we found that we had a direct line on because they were the sponsors of this first uh, international hemp symposium in, in Germany that we went to, um, where they had launched a brand of hemp rolling papers. And so I guess the idea of rolling cannabis in cannabis paper, hemp paper, um, was appealing to consumers. And so in addition to making some of our own products, we made, well, we made you know, a bunch of textile products. We made some paper products, more you know, sort of design-oriented products, even at that time, quite interested in design as well. And, um, but the rolling papers were the things that really sold. And we ended up changing the name of the company from natural emphasis to natural, hem- uh, from natural emphasis to natural emphasis, dropping the H, because as a long story short, we connected with another company who had a really great product out of Barcelona, Spain. Um, Michele Costas is the company's name. And they were launching their own better than the original one we started off with, uh, hemp rolling paper. And um, they asked us to do it exclusively. There were their whole line of papers and some of them, they weren't all hemp products. And we didn't want to use the name hemp for a product that had the other paper types in there. And uh, so we did that. We kept the name Natural Hemphasis going because we, uh, we ended up um, continuing in research. And in the early days, you know, when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do, you have a product that works, you're trying out some other things and sort of just poking around. I was quite interested in in what was going on here in terms of moving the laws. I mean, so even though we didn't do our project on on Chris Clay and, you know, his constitutional challenge, which went very well, and he got there and he got a slap on the wrist, but the the judge, as it turned out, basically said, it's not my jurisdiction to talk to the, the politicians. So, you know... Uh, we we kind of were in an early state of lobbying, I guess. I wrote a, a, a paper while I was uh, at business school, a thesis, I guess, if you will. And uh, and a few years later, I was invited with a bunch of other people in the industry to Ottawa. Um, and at that point, it, as it turned out, it was right before they changed the laws to allow industrial hemp growing in Canada legally on a commercial scale. But at that time, we were I mean, I was still me, you know, 50, 50 at best that the laws would change. You know, it just Mm. seemed prohibition had gone on for so long, even though there was this kind of momentum building, it seemed still unlikely. And, and, and it shows what can happen when you do basic research. The woman, Jean Peart, who uh, was responsible for the hemp file for Health Canada, when she met me, she said, oh, 
okay, I know you. She said, your paper was the first thing I was given to read when I was given this role. And so that, I mean, that was one small piece and there were all sorts of other people doing their pieces, but collectively this big sort of snowball started, you know, gaining momentum in, in 1998 hemp um, growing was uh, industrial hemp growing was legalized in Canada. The guys who started with hemp line, they were convinced it was going to be a fiber crop because hemp, so hemp is low THC cannabis and, and industri- the industrial variety, which historically has been used for fiber. So uh, in the 17th and 18th century, even the 19th century, uh, all the sails and the rigging of the ships were all made of hemp. Clothing was made of hemp. Paper was t- typically rag paper made from recycled hemp cloth and ropes and stuff that they made paper out of. So it really was the dominant fiber crop. And a, a few of us at the time saw this potential for it to be uh, an oilseed crop, really, a yeah, an oilseed crop. And, and we looked at flax as the reference point because flax, like hemp, and they're, they're interesting plants in that they're not related, but they're both have, uh, you know, very important fiber aspect as well as a, an important seed aspect. And, you know, I think in the 1800s, hemp really eclipsed flax and flax started getting bread for seed. And so when I looked in the 90s at what was happening in Canada, Canada was growing a million acres of flax and it was all for seed. None of it was for fiber. Flax fiber is linen. It's very fine, great clothing, but it it doesn't have the technical properties of hemp, uh, which is a much stronger fiber, more resilient to rot and so forth. And so the early, you know, when, when we were in Germany, the industry that was taking off there was all based on the fiber. But a number of us recognize that Canada's not, I mean, we're a fiber uh, economy from a tree standpoint, but not from an agricultural crop standpoint. And so long story short, we started, uh, we, we partnered with, uh, well, I did a three-year research project with a researcher at Agriculture Canada, Dr. Ernest Small. Ernie um, is really a Canadian grandfather of cannabis research. He's been researching cannabis within the context of, uh, of working as a research scientist at Agriculture Canada since the early 70s. In the early 70s, he actually had a two-acre like high THC cannabis research farm in that the experimental farm in downtown Ottawa. So, you know, from, from an academic standpoint, he's been pushing things for quite a long time uh, on the cannabis front in Canada, far before anyone was talking about hemp. And he was interested in it. And so we did a three-year project where we got genetic material from all over the world. Or... what seed yielding potential it might have. And, uh, and that was quite interesting. We published a bunch of papers and he introduced me to a colleague, Art McElroy, who was also at Agriculture Canada at the time and who was going, going off on his own. And um, he was an oats breeder and we started breeding hemp. And so other people did around the same time. And, and before long, Canada was growing 100,000 acres of hemp and it was all for seed. And so as it turned out, I guess you would say we were right in that that was really the fit. And most of that seed has gone into the um, the health food market. So initially, and this is the thing that I find so interesting looking at the entrepreneurial journey, if you will, is that you have this expectation going in of what that product's going to be. 
right? But what I found through my time is it's actually you have to try a bunch of things and actually listen and find out what people want. And so everyone thought it was going to be hemp oil. And so Hemp Oil Canada was one of the early companies. And, but really, it was, it was the hulled hemp seed, which are more commonly known as hemp hearts. That's the bulk of, of the 100,000 plus acres that are being grown are for hemp hearts. And that's how the industry developed. So we, we bred and registered probably four or five different varieties of hemp and stayed involved. In the meantime, I started another company and a good friend and colleague, Rolly, kept that business going. And, um, and then as time passed, uh, medical marijuana became a thing. And so there was, you know, we always kind of were in the periphery and we're kind of watching and thinking about opportunities. And um, there were, so there've been a variety of different sort of steps along the way in cannabis legalization that led to full legalization a few years ago, but the first was the hemp legalization. And then it was the, the medical legalization. And initially the government was um, uh, basically did an RFP and had a single producer producing for it. There's a whole long story there I won't go into, but long and the short of it, the patients weren't very happy with the quality. And so they opened it up. And when they opened it up, um, uh, the MMAR was called at the time, it was really letting the genie out of the bottle, right? Because they, because they were being forced to do it by the courts and the way it all played out, they really didn't have all the regulations figured out. They just kind of, you know, if you have a prescription, you can grow it for yourself or you can grow it for someone else who has a prescription. Next thing you know, there are people growing it quasi-legally all over the place. And they realized, oh no, like this is just getting a bit out of control. I mean, in a way it was working great, but from the standpoint of they wanted it to be very, you know, like controlled. I mean, the first, the first medical marijuana license they gave was to grow in the bottom of a mine because they were so concerned about security. Right. So fascinating. Manitoba, right. Because they were paranoid about it. And the next thing you know, they made this change and then everybody's growing it. And, and are, is it legal? We're not sure. It's kind of legal. And, Anyway, so after that, then they came out with the MMPR, which was kind of a more focused, regulated form of the medical regs. And we said, okay, let's do that, right? And so we put it, this is 2013, I think, and we put in our license application and we got what was called a letter to build right before they, like, because I think what happened is when, when they came out with the MMPR regs, they kind of needed some companies that were in line. Mm -hmm. So right before, you know, maybe dozen or a couple dozen companies sort of got their letters to build. Okay. So they could say there are companies who are, you know, have been given the green light to go ahead and build. And um, the plan we had was for a building that was owned by a friend of mine. And so when I went to him, it turned out it was going to be available because they had bought, an, they were buying another building. That other deal fell through. So I went and bought another building conditionally and told the government, hey, we just want to amend same plan, same security. We just, transferring all that to this other address. And they're like, no, no, you can't do that. You can reapply, but now you're in the back of the line instead of being number 20, say we were number 600. And so I was like, hold on. That doesn't sound like a good deal to me. And, and this is the other thing I've found in life and business is sometimes these things that seem like the worst things 
uh, really so often are the very best things. Like, I mean, when I go way back, when we started, when I got out of school, we decided we were going to, we were to open a store, right? Cause that seemed like the things to do. And we put a bid on a space down on Queen street West and like 20 minutes before they got our offer, they got another offer that they accepted. Best thing that ever happened to me stayed out of mm-hmm. retail, right? We mm-hmm. just went the wholesale route. And so same thing with the MNPR, when we didn't get that, we just stuck back and said, okay, let's just take a deep breath and watch how things play. And, and it, it really had a silver lining because what I came to realize, it was right around that time that that CBD as a component, because medical marijuana at that time was all about THC, right? And the difference between THC is uh, THC gets you high and CBD is non-intoxicant, but has many therapeutic benefits. And so we started hearing about CBD and it's funny because I mean, you know, in the early days of the hemp industry, I, I don't, nobody was talking about CBD. I, I can't remember when Machulam discovered it, but it was kind of around that time. And it was, you know, the first paper was just coming out. It just, it wasn't publicized yet. And so we heard about that. We, we, because we stayed in the hemp industry at one point during that period, we also did a hemp seed energy bar because, you know, to work. so we were, we were still with the breeding and the hemp seed energy bar. We were really tied in. Um, and so we're part of the, the hemp industry association was called the Canadian hemp trade Alliance. And it really is a very good organization. I have to say and for a young organization, a young industry, having a very good, uh, trade organization that is representing really the whole industry was amazing because mm. they were able to, um, be one point of contact for the government. And as a lobby group, it was very, very important, but I mean, it went from no one in the hemp industry wanted to even talk about CBD because they didn't want the, like hemp was seen to have been successful and the, and, and the hemp regulations that allowed for hemp growing in Canada were successful because it wasn't marijuana. Mm-hmm. It was less than 0.3% THC by law, very structured. And they didn't want to mess with that because a lot of people had a lot of, had a really a good thing going. And, but right at that time, I'm trying to think now, probably 2015, maybe somewhere around there. Um, we basically, again, a small group of us convinced the bigger group, this is the time to start thinking about CBD. I mean, literally the year before they kicked someone out of the, out of the symposium, the annual symposium for talking about it. But, you know, a friend of mine who's a lawyer was interested in it. I got them to bring her in and we wrote a right white paper. And, and really the idea was because there was this kind of noise about the government was really thinking about going further with the cannabis legalization beyond just the MMPR, which became the ACMPR and actually legalizing cannabis. So the industry was like thinking, well, hold on, we've been in this longer than anybody. We don't want to be left out. So the, you know, at that time, the, the hemp industry, uh, the hemp trade Alliance successfully lobbied for the inclusion of hemp in the new regulations. And for us as a, as a, as a, business, I mean, meaning that we were interested in getting into this new business of what was being made possible by these new regulations, um, we saw this opportunity to, to do hemp CBD. But at the same time, what was so interesting to us about hemp as a source of CBD is that hemp is grown outdoors. And when we looked at what we'd almost done, buying a building and growing under the MMPR and growing medical marijuana indoors, is it, it's kind of a an ecological train wreck. I mean, you know, you're using power for lights, you're using power for heat or for cooling, you're using 
uh, power for dehumidification. I mean, it's just power, power, power. Plus you got bricks and mortar. So it's expensive plus all the security that you require. So it's not a cost-effective way to grow and, and not an ecologically sound way to grow from our standpoint. And what we learned over being in the hemp industry all this time is that cannabis actually does really well outside. So we had a research license and we continued to, you know, start pushing the limit, you know, of what the hemp plant could do in terms of CBD production. And we got interested in how can we really take advantage of these new regulations as completely as possible. And long story short, what that means. And so the other thing I need to say, if you're going to be in a regulated industry, you have to be patient. It takes a long time. And, and quite honestly, it takes more money than you're going to expect. Because even though we've done it on the cheap, as it were, I mean, our, our approach is very much artisanal craft, you know, kind of the craft beer of cannabis, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. So local and craft and smaller scale. Even so, you know, when it takes years to get all the required licenses, and we started with research licenses, and then we moved to a lab license. And then from that, we were able to sort of get a foot in the door and convert that over to a processing license. And then eventually we got our, our cultivation license. And so now we have all the licenses we need and we're in. And, um, and we're doing hemp-based CBD where we buy from farmers as we expected. And, but we're also growing our own higher THC material at our own farm, Trent Hills. And so now we have uh, a fully operational craft-based uh, cannabis company that abide. Uh, which uh, as its first product uh, is a brand called Whole Hemp, which is based on this concept of not just being grown outdoors sustainably, but also that the CBD is whole plant derived. And, And by that, we mean in the marketplace of CBD, you, you have kind of two camps. One are, are we're called the full spectrum camp uh, or whole plant base. And the, and the other, Camp, I guess, would be the isolate. And isolates are just purified. And um, they're cheaper, they're more ubiquitous, but but there's very good research out there that shows that when you actually um, make products of the, the whole plant so that you don't just strip out the CBD, but you have trace amounts of THC and other lesser cannabinoids, you have the terpenes and so forth, that there's a synergistic effect called the entourage effect that actually um, makes the CBD more, more therapeutically available. Mm. And, uh, and so that's, that's what our focus is on. And, and strangely, we thought, I mean, strangely, because it was what the industry thought in the early days of the hemp industry, that we thought CBD oil would be the thing. And so, I mean, I bought 10,000 liters of organic sunflower oil and, you know, got ready for, for cranking up the, the CBD oil. And then with the time, I mean, once you're licensed, with Health Canada, well, you still have to get approved by the Ontario Cannabis Store because they're the LCBO Cannabis in Ontario, and that takes time. And so as time goes on, it turns out, well, they weren't really interested in the CBD oil because they had other people doing that by that time. And so we started with products made with the oil. So we, we do a, a, a topicals, we do a, um, a CBD cream, which, you know, it's amazing, right? It's, it's so fun to be in an industry that helps people. We get these incredible emails and, and posts and stuff from uh, people who use the product and all the ways it's helping them and 
So really, it's nice to be in a, in a business like that. It's one of the, really, I think, the wonderful things about, about this business we're in. Um, but we also decided, you know, those things are great, but when you buy a, a pot of cream, it, it lasts you for a while. So there was, there was some good orders, but it wasn't really enough to sustain the business. So you keep trying new things in the product that really we found surprisingly to us that are now our bread and butter are what we call the flower-based products and flower in the standpoint of cannabis flower. So, but uh, flower, you know, cannabis flower, in this case, hemp flower, that is nicely, beautifully manicured and comes in a bud and you grind it up and roll it up and you smoke it. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, initially we're like, well, who would want that? I mean, it doesn't get you high. (laughs) Turns out a lot of people want it. And, and we've kind of come at it to figure it out. We realize it has a bunch of therapeutic benefits that people can get and smoking for a lot of people is a good way to get it, especially if they're a cannabis consumer, cannabis smoker already. Um, you find uh, people who like to mix it with their higher THC material because it, it sort of balances it out. It, it takes some of the less desirable attributes uh, in marijuana, like the paranoia and so forth. It really dials it way down. It, it's kind of like mix in a way, right? Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone's just drinking straight vodka in the, in the alcohol world, um, but it also has benefits on its own. So we know we've heard from people who are trying to quit smoking cigarettes. And so they roll the CBD instead. And so here we are in a business that is the business we anticipated be in with a product that was not the product that we anticipated uh, would be kind of the mainstay of our business. And so now we are, as the business is growing, we're starting to do some blends of the hemp-based CBD with some of our higher THC material where people are blending their own. So we are pre-blending at different ratios uh, for the customer. And that's how we got here. It's always so interesting how what we think something is going to look like, especially as an entrepreneur, is rarely what it actually ends up looking like because people have opinions, demand changes, the industry changes in these ways where it's like, oh, well, I I guess I'm so I hate the term pivot because I'm not talking about a pivot where you're like entirely changing industries or anything, mm-hmm. but where you're responding to market demand or you're responding to market changes. And I think that one of the, you know, one of the threads inside your story is that ability to do that over and over again is why you are still in the industry, even as the industry has changed 20 years later. My business plan for a while was changing weekly. <laughs> As I learned, I mean, like, because I don't, I'm not one of those write the business plan down, but you still have an idea in your head yeah, of yeah. kind of where you're going, but it's this general direction and you're tweaking all the time as new information comes up. I mean, outdoor cultivation was part of the, um, the draft regulations when they came out. So we're getting ready for that. Next thing we hear, we see a new version and it's like, well, there's a question mark beside outdoor. Well, so when I did some digging, it's because the incumbent publicly traded cannabis companies, the big guys, they had already invested in all the indoor, right? So they were lobbying hard to bury the outdoor. And then some things happened and outdoor was back in again, right? So, you know, every, every literally week or two, new information came in or whatever, and you just had to subtly adjust. I mean, a new right, you know, the regulations coming. You haven't seen the regulations. The draft is different than the final regulations. You know, I mean, we actually were going to launch a product as CBD oil 
And it was in a 240 mil bottle. And we didn't realize that when they changed from the original cannabis regs, which allowed oil, CBD oil to what they called the, the 2.0 version, which sort of moved oil into other categories, extracts or edibles and these types of things. They put in this weird regulation that an extract, which is what oil then is considered, right. can't be in a bottle larger than 90 milliliters. I mean, it's not it, like you'd think that the regs would say you can't have more than this, you know, psychoactive component, like, but it, it's right, the right, component right. they're worried about. And they're just like, no, you know, the container can't be bigger, bigger than this. So I, I'm sitting on, you know, a container full of containers that are too big. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So you, you, so you adapt. Yep. Right. So I'm curious because, it, you know, the industry you're in is, as you've mentioned, very regulated. It is a very specific world to be in. And I know that there is a lot there. We have a lot of people in Canada right now who are interested in or starting to step into or looking to step into the industry in some way. And I'm I'm curious what advice you would give them or what you would note for them based on your experience in as regulated an industry. Because I think and I and I want to give the context for the listeners as well. I think that stepping it, when you have no experience in a regulated industry, it is such a different world to step into, especially as an entrepreneur, that I, I think it's an important um, piece of the conversation to have so that they're not just like, oh, you know, I started a tutoring company. I could totally start a cannabis cut. No big deal. It's not the same thing. So you need to be patient. Mm. Really, you do. You just need to be patient and you have to be diligent. Um, you have to dot your I's and cross your T's. I have, uh, you know, you need a team. I have a partner, uh, a, a friend of mine who's a partner in the company who's an intellectual property lawyer. And so he's been with us all the way along. And it really ha- helps in that sense to have in-house counsel. Um, you know, we did a trade of legal work for equity. That was a great thing to do early on, for example. Yeah. Uh, I have other... Um, colleagues I work with uh, in, in my other businesses who I'm able to pull in at certain times because, you know, they have uh, a very strong background in audits and, and, you know, really detail oriented, you know, so if we need a question, you know, like that answered, I can call someone in my sort of broader circle who can help. It really, that helps. I mean, you could yeah. do it otherwise, but it, that's really helped us a lot. Um, and then, like I said earlier, it takes more time and, and time costs money. So, I mean, we've always taken a low cost approach and that's why we're still here. Uh, you know, we haven't done an IPO. We're not looking for a lot of investment capital. I lo- I'm an entrepreneur. I like to make my own decisions. I don't want yeah. people telling me what I should be doing. And so we've been able to do it that way. And, uh, and, but you, you're able to do it that way if you really keep things tight all the way along, because I mean, I've seen it in the hemp industry in the early days too, right? People just spend like crazy at the outset because they're so sure and they spend all this money and they're going the wrong way. And so all that money's wasted and it makes it much harder to be adaptable. Um, when you're, you've already deeply committed financially to a very specific path. Yeah. I think those are, I think those are really important 
uh, for people to be aware of. And I appreciate you sharing them as openly and explicitly because I, it's, it's good. It's a good lesson and it's good awareness for anyone who's like, yeah, this will be easy. No big deal. I have all this money. I'm going to burn up front, which happens all the time. Yeah. 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 It's no joke that most startups, you know, that fail, fail because of lack of access to capital because you go uh, through it faster than you expect. A hundred percent. And, and it's part of the reason, you know, I've had a few conversations on, on as part of the series where people have gone out into the world and they have procured investment in the business. And that is a viable option as long as you are aware of what you are giving up and you are okay with that. And not, not every entrepreneur wants to do that and that's okay. And for the entrepreneur, that's all they want. That's also okay. That's a different way of diving into an industry. So it's just the awareness and, and, you know, speaking into all the different ways that this could work because that's real. The other thing I'd say about this industry, and this is less about the regulated part, but in, in an early stage industry, which cannabis is in terms of legal sense. For sure. Um, it's really good, I think, at least from my standpoint, to carve out your own niche. It's amazing how many people, I mean, I, I joke in, in our industry that uh, the cannabis industry is like a bunch of six-year-olds playing soccer. Right. And the ball is high THC. Right. And they're all like huddled around the ball, running all over the field, you know, chasing after the high THC ball. And it's like when I talk to people, it's like a lot of people think that stuff's all way too strong. Right. And so, you know, coming up with other products, not just other categories, drinks versus gummy bears versus, but, but actually just looking at the product in a different way. Well, I've, okay, yeah, lots of people want to smoke something that's very strong, fine. But, you know, it's an intoxicant. When I look at the world of intoxicants, uh, the obvious reference is alcohol. Most people I know rather have a, a beer or a glass of wine. They don't want to chug a Mickey anymore. I mean, maybe when they're 18, <laughs> standing alive, right? But right, right. people usually get over that pretty quick. Yeah, they're and skipping that 100 proof. They're skipping the 100 proof rum at a certain point. And that's right. Ha- yeah. But I think. We're still, I, I, I think the cannabis industry in a way is still stuck in a prohibitionist mindset, growing indoors under heavy security, growing the strongest stuff. I mean, in the prohibition alcohol, it was all whiskey because it's, it's concentrated. It's easy to move after prohibition. It's mostly beer and wine. Yep. And so that's where I, you know, I always like to look when everyone's zigging, you look for a zag and, yep. and if it's a big enough industry, there's lots of these little niches that you can you can, you can find and, yeah. and develop. And then you got to be expecting a whole lot of competition. So all you get is a, a brief first mover advantage. And then the next thing, you know, and, and for us, that's branding. And so the whole hemp brand, we put a lot of energy into really trying to establish that as a really high quality product, sort of a, the go-to in that, in that category, because invariably in the probably not too distant future, there are going to be lots of copycats and, uh, and so quality, ultimately, quality and a good price point with, with good branding ultimately becomes your, your rock, I guess. Yeah. Um, but being there a little earlier helps you carve out a bit of territory. Yep. And uh, it's also, there's also an opportunity when, as to your point, when you can see everyone chasing around the high THC soccer ball, someone who steps in, even if they're not there early, but can see that from the outset from the outside and go, oh, there's an opportunity that's not that soccer ball. That's really important as well to be able to do that. So I think that 
you know, for someone who might be stepping in to not look at the shiny soccer ball object that everyone's chasing, but look at the rest of the field and see what's happening. Yeah. For us, we were lucky because we got, because we didn't get that building in both times, right? Both, both hemp and cannabis. We, we tried to do something based on a piece of real estate that didn't work out. And it seemed like this problem in both cases, it really helped our business. And in yeah. that case, it, we were we were chasing the ITHC ball indoors like everybody else because that seemed like the only game in town. And it was only when we were forced to kind of take a deep breath. And then you actually start not rushing the decision and thinking about it more broadly and looking for other ways of looking at it that you come to very different conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dave, I, I really appreciate your time today. This has been super interesting and um, really informative. I, for all the listeners, this will also be in the show notes, but you can find out more about uh, Dave and what his business does at wholehemp.com. Is there any other social media that they should be directed to? Uh, our social media, we use the tag uh, wholehempcbd is our at. There you go. Wholehempcbd. Um, so go. thank you, Dave, for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, and thank for the see. listeners, thanks for listening to Canada's podcast. Like, comment, and subscribe to all our channels to get the latest podcasts from entrepreneurs across Canada.